I feel a, a need and interest in trying to kind of consolidate the diversity of experiences and questions and things that I've been talking about and things that you've brought up. Of course, there are many questions there always are, but naturally um, not everyone is interested in one specific question. But I try to say something that hopefully gives you enough for your own chitta to deal with the specific details, yeah? And uh, this is whatever it is in terms of body energies or mental topics, pleasant or unpleasant, strange, supernormal or embarrassingly familiar. It's the withdrawal and uh, stepping back and seeking unification. So when you feel irregular body energies, you withdraw from the irregularity. You find where the body does feel or your experience is comfortable and accessible and you make much of that until the disturbance ceases or no longer impinges. Similarly with any mental difficulty, you bring up a topic where you have mental confidence, (coughs) resolution, calm, and you make less of that difficulty. So your mind acquires unity around what is comfortable and accessible and useful and that itself may let the difficulty just dissolve. You know, some of these we kind of create ourselves, really, through doubt or worry or uncertainty or fear or, um, you know, nobody's fault. It's just what the chitta does. It picks up things. Now, if, if a difficulty does not subside, then you need to deal with it. You know, so there's either a psychological, mental, emotional difficulty or physical difficulty. If it does not subside... After a while, after, you know, not just one, but repeated withdrawals and practices, then you need to attend to it wisely. And attending wisely depends whether it's internal or external. And it really is the aim of it is to bring the mind back into unity so there isn't this nagging thing. And sometimes we adjust our attitudes, recognizing, well, perhaps I expect my body to feel more comfortable than it can be, you know, so why don't I just learn to be a bit more tolerant or expect people to be more sensitive than they actually are (laughs) so why don't I adjust my expectations, so an external issue or an internal issue, you know, what do you what do you expect in the middle of a crowded street, so you think, oh yeah, well, then you're able to withdraw from that and just let it pass sometimes it still doesn't pass then we uh, inquire into that. And you're looking for essentially for this where the mind can find unification. So again, one, some of this can be addressed internally, so we recognize, oh, people are like this, people like that. My, fi- my mind finds unity in compassion and forgiveness. <laughs> my body is like this, my body is like that. My mind finds unity in dispassion and acceptance of the nature of the body, not self. So this is really like a not self teaching. We move out from the he is this, she is that, why are they like this, into this is people, these are jittas, confused, distracted, compassion, forgiveness and so forth. Still doesn't subside. <laughs> then again we need to investigate further. Uh, sometimes in terms of people, um, you know, you need to actually uh, let them know <laughs> that this behavior is 
not suitable or you're finding great difficulty with it or in fact you find it unacceptable for your welfare or what's proper human conduct. So the level at which you just really need to kind of inform people and the idea of informing people is is really for their welfare. Like, because if their behaviour is grossly inappropriate, then they're creating a lot of bad karma themselves and they may not even recognise it. So it's just like, because, you know, I think you can cause yourself a lot of damage or a lot of, you know, you create bad feelings, I need to let you know this is this and this action is unsuitable. And so we're trying to help each other. And if a person, you know, again, you have to work with this, if you find that difficult to accept, then you, you know, withdraw again and try it again. And, and uh, <laughs> that's the way it goes with, with people, finding the right time and right place and the right mood. But it's certainly not the case you just accept everybody else's rubbish being dumped on you from a sense of kind of, affable but <laughs> rather uh, passive uh, goodwill so similarly with our own jitta our own mind there's a point in which you say this is just not suitable stop it <laughs> you know just push it away turn your attention away and you can even doing this with your 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 sometimes your mind just gets involved with strange energies or too, too fascinated by them. They just, just, this is not going anywhere useful. Withdraw from that. Turn your attention somewhere else. Or to something else. So, here's a broad definition of skills. Unification and emptying. Emptying of self. Now, one of the questions, the interesting question that came up, well, you know, maybe seemed slightly off the point, was, I just had this year or so of sabbatical. I was very involved with community for about 30 years and abbot of one for 22 years and leading things and organizing things and managing things and instructing things and stuff like that, you know. So how does a, what happens? How does a bhikkhu spend his break period? <laughs> now, this is not just a personal question, though, of course, it's a personal focus, but and, uh, you know, you can think, well, now I get the chance to do the things I never had time to do. But then, once you have the time to do it, you recognize you don't want to do it anymore anyway. <laughs> All you want to do is sit there, <laughs> walk up and down, sit there and just access the chitta and, and uh, directly, while one still has time and energy and a, and a, phys- a healthy body, to really, uh, uh, you know, not just add more things to the mix, but empty out. And so sometimes people talk about reinventing themselves at certain ages, at certain turning points in their life. I more or less decided to uninvent myself, <laughs> de-invent myself, because I've been inventing myself for years. <laughs> I keep imagining there's somebody here. <laughs> who's got to fix everything and solve everything and make things work and be responsible and look after everyone else. And it, who's that? That sounds like a very busy person. <laughs> and does it ever succeed? Not really. <laughs> you know, it does to a certain extent, and yet, yeah. So, and then naturally people, you know, 
your kind of abbot or teacher or whatever, that's that's a sign. That's a that's a that's a sign. That's a symbol. That's an icon that um, people pick up. And uh, sometimes one has to re- remind people, look, that's you know that's not actually an ultimate truth. You know, <laughs> it may be a helpful sign at times, useful sign, but it's also um, the signless, uh, which is the anicca, impermanence, and anatta, non-self. Whatever we think, conceive, uh, imagine is something that our mind generates. It is subject to change. It never quite fits exactly. It's dukkha. And really, there's nobody, no fixed entity there. This helps in terms of differentiation, where lots of problems occur. Bigger, smaller, younger, older, men, women, monks, lay people, nuns, so forth. A lot of problems occur around these topics. And really important to recognize, well, you know, if there is actually an issue here that is unacceptable, inappropriate, wrong behavior, does not support practice, then we need to deal with that. Otherwise, we understand this is the realm of differentiation. That's what the sense consciousness does. That's what our social conditioning is about. But also, Dhamma practice is to make it a realm of non-differentiation. Stop inventing each other as men and women nuns and monks, teachers and disciples, just this jitta. And there's confusion, and there's happiness, and there's goodwill, and there's energy, and there's effort, and there's problems, and defilements, and so forth. And uh, this, then we accurately deal with what can be dealt with. So, this is kind of, you know, what I do. And sometimes I do do it very well, and sometimes when I really get a focus on it, then yes, I can get, I can work things out. I can get through it. So again, someone asks, is it possible for lay people to be stream mentors? Well, of course, it's not possible for lay people to be stream mentors. But it's not possible for nuns to be stream mentors. And it's certainly not possible for monks to be stream mentors. <laughs> it's only possible for undifferentiated jittas to be stream entry, because this is the whole point of the stream entry is, is the first of all, we get past the sense of the differentiated identity, sakaya ditti, and then the sense of attachment to conventions, customs, traditions, systems, roles, behaviors, like my position here, that's, hopefully that's helpful, it's not an eternal truth, um, but it can be very, I hope it's helpful, we can get something out of it. And you know, maybe negative effects, maybe you feel intimidated or lessened by that. Well, this is not skillful. It's not intended. Try to pick up what is skillful, make much of that, unify your mind on that, use it for your welfare. If it's not for your welfare, just kindly put it to one side. So this is like getting past what's called sila paramasa, attachment to systems, conventions, roles, customs, all these sorts of things, you know. And the last one is doubt, which is the wavering and uncertainty as to, as to Dhamma. That is, we mistake uh, thoughts as Dhamma. We mistake ideas as Dhamma. Dhamma. Ideas and thoughts can point to Dhamma, but they are not Dhamma. 
You know, Dhamma is that experience of where the indriyas come together. This we can say is Dhamma. Where there's faith, we experience that. Where there's a sense of energy, and you experience that. When there's sati, and you experience that. When the mind unifies, and you experience that. And when the wisdom, and you experience that. This we can say is Dhamma. And hopefully some of these words and teachings can bring you to that point. There's too many of them. Mind gets fogged over with words and ideas. This is what we need to do, you know. And I have every sympathy for uh, people who live in the lay life, recognizing there's a huge push and pressure to just get stuck in these sensory conditions, in these role positions, in these identity positions, uh, and so forth. It's not certainly not the easiest boat to ride in. I don't, in, I, you know, please, go forth. <laughs> but if that's not possible or comfortable, then, then you recognize this is the boat. And you've got to recognize, you know, don't, no point getting into doubt and regret about it. This is what you're doing. Then you definitely need to build your practice up to, to meet that. And certainly uninventing yourself, <laughs> disinventing yourself <laughs> is really important because everything is asking you to be something, to become something, to get somewhere, to be a success, to achieve lots of things, to have lots of stuff, to get more money so you can have lots of stuff, so you can get even busier running after more money to get more stuff. <laughs> And you need it for happiness. No, 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 wait a minute. Let's have a look at the Buddha. How much did he have? <laughs> Zero. <laughs> Bowl robe. Okay. So naturally, you know, you need a car, you need a flat or an apartment, or whatever it is and so forth. But you're looking at that, you constantly have that thing in mind. If you take any more than you need, you've got a burden. And you, you have to find out your level of need. And this is just itself is a very important practice when you look at the whole area of cultivation one should not just look at it as a sitting still experience chitta is operating all the time and you need one i thoroughly recommend you look into constantly into lifestyle structures of your life because this is what's going to be either a burden or a support we can't it's so it really is extremely difficult to to get very, you know, to develop in a lifestyle that is that you're just not happy with, that your mind just cannot manage. You're putting too much, you can't expect meditation to solve everything. <laughs> but cultivation can. Cultivation, you've got some bigger chances. So just to open up that topic. Yeah. And this is your ongoing encouragement for continuing to practice. Certainly you do need to dip into these protected scenarios and scenarios where restraint is laid on to just freshen up remember and, and take in some of these teachings deeply now i want to just read a little bit of something i just find it very beautiful it's from the middle length discourse i won't read all of it and it's the lesser discourse on emptiness the blessed one was live at savati in the eastern park, in the palace of Megara's mother, 
This is the great uh, lay disciple Visaka gave this uh, park to the to the Sangha. So Ananda asks him, now uh, I've heard and learned this from the Blessed One's own lips. The Blessed One has said, now Ananda, I often abide in voidness. Did I hear that correctly? Venerable Sir, did I learn that correctly? Attend to that correctly? Remember that correctly? Certainly, Ananda, you heard that correctly, learned it correctly, attended to it correctly, remembered it correctly. And then he, the Buddha then goes through a whole sequence of explaining the principle of voidness, or I call it em- emptying out. And this is partly to do with disidentification, or not creating yourself, and it starts with recognizing the mind picks up certain signs. In the street you pick up the sign of busyness, so you get busy. Shopping arcade you pick up the sign of consuming, so you get consuming. Meditation all, hopefully you pick up the sign of harmony and tranquility, so you get that. So this is the mind adopts these signs, it does it quite naturally. And the Buddha says, well now you can deliberately cultivate that, when the mind is picking up the wrong sign. By noticing emptiness. So he says, first of all, just in a very simple instance, this uh, palace of Megara's mother is void of elephants, cattle, horses and mares, void of gold and silver, void of the assembly of men and women. And it's presently only this non-voidness, namely this, this singleness dependent on the Sangha of Bhikkhus. So you ignore or you recognize what isn't there. No elephants, no horses. And there's just this one thing present in this place which happens to be the Bhikkhu Sangha. So you get this sense of simplifying. Now this is important because when you get home from work, you've got to recognize, I've sat down, the boss isn't here. The work isn't here. The job isn't here. And, you know, of course it doesn't happen immediately. But you keep encouraging, look, all is here is me sitting down. And if you have a little shrine, there's me sitting down, there's the Buddha. And you keep sustaining that sign till all these qualities, these elements you're carrying over from the day can abate. And so, and that's why we have a big thing. We light candles, incense, flowers, puja. Because this is our entry, because of course, you know, most people find it rather difficult to put down all the rest of the stuff. So you have to bring something up pretty loud and clear to say just this now, you know, and reflect on, you know, the meaning of the Buddha, values of the Buddha, the values of the Dhamma, the values, just get your mind working on it. So in that, your mind attains a singleness, which is the singleness of the triple gem. Right? This is something that we can at least, oh yeah, that's what it's about. <laughs> you know, it's not just some kind of ritual. So, to get back to the sutta, so to a bhikkhu, not attending to the perception of village, not attending to the perceptions of people, attends to the singleness dependent on the perception of a forest. His mind enters into that perception of forest and acquires confidence, steadiness and resolution. So you pick up suitable signs for your mind, you know, feels steady in that and you feel confident in it. You, yeah, this is true, this is, this is helpful. And then you recognize whatever disturbances there might be, dependent on the perception of village, those are not present here. So again, boss isn't here, job isn't here, tomorrow isn't here. 
what's here. Breathing in and out is here. <laughs> Feeling the body's elements is here. Yeah. Looking, at, looking at the shrine is here. Yeah. Remembering what I need to, what is skillful is here. So you notice what isn't present and you notice what is present and you notice um, there's present only this non-voidness, this void of people, villages, etc., only the single is dependent on the perception of a forest. So he's sitting there, it's just trees. In this particular example. Now you can say, well you're not in trees, but you've got your shrine. So the perception of shrine. With the rest of it you begin to deliberately you know, filter off. Understands that which is present thus, this is present. As I've been saying, it's like this now. This is present. Now this it's like this. This Ananda is as genuine, undistorted, pure descent into voidness. It means your jitta actually has learned to drop a lot of stuff and it's called descent. That's an interesting word, isn't it? It means there's something like a relaxing, a downshift into ah, the relief of the absence of a burden. As a feeling, oh, that's not here now. And recognize, you know, often our instinct is to try to, you know, reach up to have something we don't have. To reach out to some state or thing that we don't have right now in order that we can get that and feel happier. This is a descent. It's a letting go that is the most important thing. You use the sign of the forest or the shrine to let go of the rest. This is present, emptying out, voidness. And voidness means we begin to even contemplate all that stuff about yesterday and tomorrow and the boss and the job. There's no substance to it. It's now it's just what my mind is generating. It's, it's just purely immaterial imagining. So I say the mind is constantly imagination. And we can imagine who we are and what we're not. And, you know, you attend to the singleness. Another example, say, you know, in my life when I'm sort of meditating and so forth, and you come out and maybe you go to a, a dana and let's say 200 people turn up and it's pretty busy. The kids running around doing their stuff, people chopping up stuff, you know, people getting excited and spoons clattering and all is going on and you could get quite agitated if you attended to all the movement and the people the individual people what they're wearing or oh remember him and who's that instead you attend to the sign of this is dana this is the sign of faith this is the sign of goodwill this is so you attend to that and instead of getting agitated by other qualities, you attend to the sign that unifies the mind, and you empty. So often, you know, generally you see monks are just sort of sitting there, down and not looking happy or excited, just sitting. they're not depressed, hopefully, but they're just deliberately emptying out other signs and letting the jitter open to the quality of dana. It's not, we're not supposed to be that excited about it, but just taking it in and attuning to the beauty of it. And then that, the mind then it descends into emptiness. It doesn't get excited. It just feels comfortable and relaxed. There is goodwill. This is another example of the emptying. 
Now, this is because emptying can sound spooky, you know, frightening, like it's all barren and bleak, nothing's going on. But it really means that that busyness that you've been in has dissolved and the identity that you are carrying in that busyness. You know how your busyness creates you as the busy person, as the person in charge, as the person who's got to make it work, as the person who doesn't know what to do, as the, you know. And you, as you di- let go of the objects, the subject disappears as well. <laughs> well you begin to recognize that oh, the Sakaya, the level of personal identity, is generated by impressions and topics. It's not really a lasting entity, it's just generated by impressions, topics, circumstances. Do you notice that? Do you notice like you, sometimes you're going into a place with uh, like customs or police, you become a small frightened person? <laughs> Very polite. <laughs> And with the children, you become a kind of caring, hovering person. You know, you suddenly feel very responsible. You don't do that when you're with policemen. You're a different person, aren't you? You don't hover over them, brushing the dust off their uniforms, <laughs> tidying them up. <laughs> so you, you, you change, don't you? Your identity changes, your manners change, and you become... And you notice that. So it's a shift, isn't it? So... Then this process continues, so not attending, the, not attending to people, not attending to the perception of forests, it tends to the singleness dependent on the perception of earth. So this quality of earth, uh, substantiality, you know, things that have definite form, we notice that about forests. You know, the trees, grass, hills, they've all got a certain substance to them. And this is, it goes into the earth element. So in a gay, the mind which could be fascinated by this tree or that tree, you know, what's that one called? Oh, look, that was nice. Just goes into this is nature or earth element, however you want to call it. It, it finds one unifying characteristic that underlies all those diverse elements. And you can do this also, you know, as I was saying, with the dana, rather than this person, that person. This is the quality of generosity. This is the quality of goodwill. So you unify around that. If you're human bodies, this is the quality of bodies, elements, rather than this is short or fat or tall or thin or male or female. This is the earth element. And then your mind goes pretty cool of all those energies, distractions that can agitate when you get into differentiation. You understand? Now here's, here's another image. Mind ends into that perception of earth and acquires confidence, steadiness and resolution. Just as a bull's hide becomes free from folds when fully stretched with a hundred pegs. Right? So you get a skin of a cow, and you, which is all kind of wrinkled, and you straighten it out and peg it down so it becomes completely smooth. And I've used that image for your own jitta, just unfolding it like a sheet and stretching it. So all the differentiations disappear. The creases come out, yeah? So to a bhikkhu not attending to any of the ridges and hollows of this earth, to the rivers and ravines, the tracts of stumps and thorns, the mountains are uneven, and uneven places, it tends to the singleness dependent on the perception of earth. 
His mind enters into that perception of earth and acquires confidence, steadiness and resolution. He understands whatever disturbances there might be, dependent upon perception of forest, these are not present here. There is only this, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of earth. This too is, he regards it as void of what is not there, but as to what remains he understands this is present. So, he understands my mind now does not experience acacia and willow and pine and mangrove experiences forest. It is void of that disturbance of speculation about differences. It is, it is unified and it's true. So this is present. Now he's not saying this is all there is, just this is what this is present now. This is what the mind experiences now. This too is his genuine, undistorted, pure descent into the voidness. Now it continues in this vein and it gets more and more refined. From the perception of earth, the mind begins to experience earth. You look at any object that you can see with your eyes, space around it. You couldn't see the object if there wasn't space. I can't see my hand if it's right there, can I? I can only see it because I can see the outline. So this space element is actually more prevalent than anything we put into it. Correct? There's more space in the room than there are people. There's more people than space. It cannot, it cannot happen. You can't have more people than there's space for. If there's, you know, so there's always more space than people. Even if we had a room completely packed with people, there would still be more space than people. Even if it's just like a millimetre around their bodies, it's still a little bit bigger than the amount of people you can pack in here. So we attend to the sign of space. He calls it infinite or measureless. You can't really get a ruler over it. You can't, how big is this space? Because it doesn't have edges. You can't put an edge on a space when you see that the... Bodies arise within space. Similarly, in terms of the jitta, and this is something to it kind of goes into more fully, all the phenomena that arise in the mind arise within a certain space. Now, characteristically, we don't notice that space, we get involved with those objects. And so much so that it seems one's mind feels completely saturated, oppressed, drenched, filled, crammed with all this congested stuff. Because this is what attention does. Attention is trained to focus on objects. So it picks up objects and um, in that state our intentionality generates objects such as doubt, frustration, disappointment, trying to get it right, worrying whether I'm good enough, can I ever meditate, how long will this take? we generate more objects to fill that space. And, uh, you know, you need to recognize however much is there. So I sometimes use this phrase, who is this happening to? Now, who is it happening to is not asking you for a name, but it helps you to just withdraw from preoccupation with the objects to the chitta that is that's occurring within that the fact that we can be aware means there's some property called the awareness property 
the space quality, the space property that is cognizant of this is happening in this space, in my space. And rather than attending to the objects, we attend to the space. Another way of expressing it is consciousness of consciousness. We're aware of awareness. And that just gives us that sense of making less out of the objects. Again, realistically, most people will need to calm, steady, lessen the amount of objects they've got in their minds just because you're working with something that's very ingrained to attend to objects. is very deeply ingrained. And um, in anybody's life, layperson's life, bhikkhu's life, it's just the mind. So it does that. So we definitely need to empty and what is aware. And certainly, you know, I was doing this a lot in my year and I continue to do it because even when I was withdrawn from duties, still there could be plenty of stuff to, what should I do? What am I going? What do I do next? And I determined that I would not answer those questions, not try to answer those questions. Say, you know, that's the point of taking a break. You open a door and you don't have to know what's on the other side of it. You just walk into the empty space and you don't look for anything to happen. Otherwise, you're not really taking a break. (laughs) So it's not to start doing something else or have things figured out, but just to abide in the emptiness of future. Because why do you have to keep inventing it? Now, you know, you might very well say, you've got to make a living and so forth. But realize it's pretty easy to invent a future. In fact, so could you stop it for five minutes? (laughs) You'll pick it up again, no no worries. You'll get it back again. (laughs) I assure you, you'll not find yourself stuck in emptiness. (laughs) It will pop up. And really being able to do this for 10 minutes, half an hour a day, it's work. But you see why it's work, and you see the compulsiveness of it, the power of it, and you see, I really have to deal with this. Because it will not stop. It will not stop by itself. It only stops when you stop it. (laughs) The future is never going to be, it can't be sorted out because your mind is creating it. Why does your mind create the future? Expectation or anxiety, right? These are, I understand these, I experience these, I don't support these. So, you know, there can be legitimate reasons, but also recognizing there's a very legitimate reason to stop doing it. And half an hour, 15 minutes, Five minutes? One minute? <laughs> it means not even the next breath. This is why Maranusati, de- uh, contemplation of death, you might not have another breath. Don't ask for another breath. Then you experience this one, this is present. And this is the singleness, isn't it? Only this is present. The next one is not present. There is no next step. And I found this again, just to come back to the 
personal domain, you know. Generally, even in my, my life as a bhikkhu, certainly even in a community, there's the next thing, isn't it? So it's nine o'clock, it's time. Next coming up is the, um, you know, the Dhamma talk. Okay. Dhamma talk. Next thing's coming up is the meal. Right. Next thing's coming up is see people after the meal. Our next thing is there's going to be a business meeting this afternoon. Okay. Next thing is I arrange to talk to this novice at tea time. Next thing is coming up is the evening puja. Next thing is coming up is I plan the retreat. You'll get some idea of how we're going to structure the retreat. These are not by any means disagreeable. And they're not necessarily a burden. But the mind does go into next, next. It's 10 o'clock, I'd better get some sleep because tomorrow, otherwise I won't feel good. It's 5 o'clock, I'd better come out of meditation now because I've got to get ready to see somebody. Now, certainly in my time on sabbatical, there isn't anything next. <laughs> you know, I, I had uh, time for solitude. The only thing next is what my mind creates. There's one event in a day. Go for the meal. Pick up the food, eat it, wash your bowl, that's it. That's the event. And you can sit there waiting for the, the next thing to happen. When I'm when I supposed to stop, you don't supposed to stop. When should I rest? When you feel tired. There's no time. When should you get up? When you've had enough sleep. And you feel, oh, but maybe... <laughs> If you can sleep too much and not sleep enough, you'll find out. <laughs> Doesn't matter, nobody's asking you to feel great. So you just let it let those structures dissolve. I found this incredible privilege. And uh you know, if you have a chance to do anything like that for a weekend even, really have a go at it. Put the clock away. You don't have to worry about eating in the evening, you can eat any old time you feel hungry. Limit it to one shot a day. And just say, okay, when, when the disagreeable feeling of hunger becomes acute, then I'll eat something. Not until then. <laughs> Not because I'm bored or it's time to eat or just because the disagreeable feeling of hunger has arisen. So I'll eat something. Now the mind is clearly flagging. My body is tired. Now it's the time to rest. Doesn't matter if it's two o'clock in the afternoon, two o'clock in the morning. Rest. Now I'm awake. Get up. <laughs> You know, <laughs> why do we have to live according to these clock things all the time, numbers? So you start to destructure. This is emptying. So just to kind of round out, it goes to a number of increasingly fine from infinite space. I mean, infinite space doesn't mean something like a Star Trek. It's... Uh, <laughs> you know, out there amongst the stars. But it's just a sense of recognizing, you know, the boundaries are just where you create them. And including in your mind, including in your, well, in that period of sabbatical for myself, there's all the space. They've been said, please, Bhante, here's space. Do what you like with it. It's measureless. The boundaries are purely what my mind creates and so that the space is there and you just say you enter into it 
And you begin to challenge these things, saying, I've got to do something, I should remember something, I should study something, I should improve something. There's restlessness. Take in space. People need me. No, they don't. You know, that one. This is the super nanny. You know, we get to be nannies as an identity. You know, nannies. <laughs> so, I get to that state as well. And uh, somebody once gave me a very nice image of to remember. He said, well, you see this? You see this glass of water? He said, now you, yeah, you put your finger in it. You take your finger out, and you see those ripples, and it stops. That's the effect that will happen when you die. It'll just be that amount of ripple, and then it will stop. <laughs> the world will continue. <laughs> You're not that important. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Disidentify, empty that one out, being the important one, being the needed one, being the necessary one, the people who can't get by without. Empty that one. Di- you know, stop inventing yourself. Tell people that. I'm not just a role. I can do it. I do it from goodwill, but that's, you know, there's a limit to that. And people need to know this because we definitely do support each other in these, in these identity experiences. So to come to the, the, the denouement, so he goes into various refined states and then his mind enters into signless concentration of mind. So he attends to the singleness, that which is unified, and then attends to the signless concentration of the mind. Signless means we understand this sign, this thing that my mind is unified around, whether it's a shrine whether it's metta, whether it's jhana, whether it's whatever it is, this particular quality, I also see it and understand it as just the sign, just the perception. Jhanas are based on perceptions. They are particular skillful perceptions that allow the mind to enter into unity. And this is one of the really important teachings with jhanas because we do get fascinated, interested, concerned about the qualities of the degrees of happiness or so forth. The important thing to remember is just it's good enough, steady enough, comfortable enough to mind to attain a sense of unity, unification. And then you begin to then understand or contemplate this thing that my mind is resting upon itself is just created. It's been fashioned, it's been brought together by skillful actions in this state. It has no permanent reality, it is signless. It means it has no final characteristic other than it is changeable. It is impermanent. This is the signless concentration as you contemplate or you rest your mind on the quality of changeability in constancy. Dependent arising, another way of putting it. And this is a wisdom characteristic. The others are calming characteristics, unification practices, and this is definitely a very strong and refined wisdom practice. This is what Vipassana is about. Understanding the conditioned, the relative, 
the changeable nature of what we are, the mind is resting on. And it's through this, understanding this, the mind ceases depending on any object. So just as a, a, a bean sprout or a vine will depend upon a pole or a stick to, to, to grow up, yeah? so with our meditation practice, we put a, a good pole in the ground, a good stick in the ground, a skillful stick in the ground. The mind then binds around it and grows up. And uh, you know, because we're not actually bean sprouts or vines, the theme is that as it grows up, as it acquires strength and confidence through using this pole, you can take the pole away. Or the pole can fall away, and the mind is independent, not dependent, consciousness which is not dependent upon a sign, therefore it doesn't waver. Yes, if you want, its sign, if you like, is, is wisdom. This too is subject to change. This too will pass, putting it in very simple terms. This sign is dependent upon perceptions uh, that my mind has generated, skillful perceptions of my mind has generated. And again, who is this? Where is this? Where is this happening to? And there's that withdrawal from signs. So the Buddha concludes... Whatever disturbances there might be dependent upon perceptions of the base of nothingness or these or jhanas, whatever disturbance which can be the sense of uh, wanting to hold it or wanting want what to do next. That's a common theme. I'm in this lovely state of calm. What do I do next? Well, that's a disturbance. So you withdraw from that. Say, well, this contemplate and. Relax the disturbance, the need to know, the need for a next thing, the need for development. And contemplate with this understanding, this perception, this experience, this calm, this happiness is present, but it's actually something that's gently moving, fluctuating, subtle, conditioned, dependent. And the mind becomes dispassionate towards that. And uh, there's an emotional withdrawal, dispassion, disenchantment, and then this ceasing to get involved. So there's only this amount left, that is the six bases conditioned by life. So he still experiences sense contact and living in this differentiated world of sights and sounds. But So that doesn't have to stop. The nature of the differentiated world of people and places to go and things to do and mothers and children and friends and family and men and women, that doesn't have to stop. What has to stop is that sense of identification with it, taking up a stand within it, making it solid, making it real, uh, so that you can also put it down. You know, you get to the end of the day and you're not this, you're not that, there's only this. And you gradually withdraw from that and experience the sense of unification around emptiness, emptying out. This may seem like perhaps a very far-fetched practice or a subtle practice, 
But uh, I think I owe it to you to give you the whole story, really. <laughs> and trust your wisdom. Remember, it doesn't have to be that refined. The Buddha goes through every possible base that a human being could achieve, down to very refined states. It doesn't mean you have to have them all. That's the thing, you get these impressive lists going out to these amazing, subtly, subtle, refined signs. The Buddha is like the gold standard, who's done the whole course. Anywhere anybody's been, he's been there. Check that out too. But if you haven't been there, you don't have to worry about the disturbance dependent upon the realm of neither perception and non-perception. It's not an issue for you. (laughs) So you just empty out wherever you are. You just, you know, okay, I can come back to the perception of shrine and empty out tomorrow, yesterday, my job, you know, for half an hour. Then you're still, it's the same place you're, you're, you're entering into. <laughs> That's the point. They all go to the same place. This, he says, even this, noticing there's no elephants in the room, which is true to this as well, and dwelling upon that absence. This too is the pure, undistorted descent into emptiness. Can you do that? <laughs> Can you notice no elephants? <laughs> Can you enjoy that experience? They aren't trumpeting around. Maybe a few, street noise, that's all, but there's no elephants. And feel, you focus on it, feel the sense of the mind picking up the relief from, you know, the disturbance, the pressure, the agitation around that. So you pick up that sign where the mind touches that, then it, as it acquires confidence and strength, it's able to empty out something that perhaps is a little more relevant, like there's no tomorrow. So the things that we do get stuck in, it empties, and you experience the same sense of relief. Till your mind acquires confidence in that. So please uh, offer this for your reflection, and hopefully for your benefit and practice. Does that mean that forget everything? Forget everything. <laughs> it means you don't attend, which isn't quite the same. Perhaps depends what you mean forgetting. It doesn't mean absent-mindedness. It means you attend very strongly to what is present uh, and you pick up something the mind can rest in. The problem for most people is they're neither completely present nor completely absent. You know, they're kind of this nether realm of about to be and should be and what will happen next. Is that present? It's sort of present, but where is it? It's all supposition. So it's half present, half absent. So this is why it's very confusing to come to terms with it. So you, why your mind needs to acquire that sense of singularity, unification and confidence, why these indriyas are to be present. And indriyas are not so much objects as leaders that hold the mind in a certain way, so that it becomes unified. And then what we've unified upon, then we can, all this ghostly material of possibles and shoulds, those can be cleared, unified. Mm-hmm. So let's have time for some direct practice.